Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It can be easy to look at the state of culture and make both a sweeping critique and diagnosis. Everything is terrible, and it was the internet that made it this way. I bounce equally off shambolic Netflix shows, repetitive superhero movies, and Instagram poetry. There's so much not to love. But, of course, this is not a complete theory of the case. For that, we have Kyle Chayka's Filter World, This new book by The New Yorker staff writer explores the particular dynamics guiding what he calls the flattening of our culture. And I can't help but nod along, even though we both grew up loving the internet. We'll talk about feeds, algorithms, AI, and reclaiming your own personal taste after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. All right, I know I came off like a curmudgeon in the opener, but something really has happened to culture, and I use the term very broadly, in the past 15 years, and that something is a set of algorithmic ranking techniques that have been pushed into just about every aspect of life, from a copy shop's Yelp ratings and Instagram-ready style to the poetry book selling on Amazon via BookTok. Kalchik's new book, Filter World, is a deep and rich exploration of all the ways that big tech platforms have restructured life both on and off our screens. It's a beautiful expansion of an essay Chaco wrote years ago about a particular coffee shop aesthetic. He called it airspace. Around here, we'd probably shorthand it as blue bottle. That has implanted itself like a stubborn fungus in every city with an international airport and many reachable only by Greyhound. How that happened, why that happened, the specific dynamics driving particular forms of cultural creation, that's really the subject of this book, as much as the platforms and their flocks of algorithms ordering up the next piece of content for you to consume on your binge. If you haven't been in the media or culture trenches, this book will explain a lot about the changes in the center of your vision and the slow transformations around the edges like the way a certain houseplant will suddenly be everywhere for reasons that no one in particular can explain. The book, though, as you'll hear, is not a lamentation or jeremiad. It's too centered in Cheka's own personal fascinations, his own life, and his desire to maintain what we called in simpler days a self. Hey, Kyle Cheka, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was a beautiful description. Oh, thanks. Um... So talk to me a little bit about the world that Filter World has created. Like, what do, what do you see when you look out and you go, like, this is an example, this is an example, like, what, what is that world? I mean, I think 
over the past decade, we've seen all of these digital platforms kind of overtake our attention. Like sometimes I think of weeds growing over a parking lot or something <laughs> like so much of what we pay attention to, what we consume in culture is directed by one recommendation or another, whether that's the Netflix homepage or the TikTok for you feed or your Instagram discover page. And I think that's a real switch. Like, that's why I called the book Filter World, I think. I wanted to have a term and a label for this environment in which so much is dictated by data that has existed before, our preferences that we've, like, put out by clicking on things, and that all of that is used to predict what we're going to consume in the future. And what it leads to, you argue in the book, is flatness. So let's kind of define what flatness means for you in this case. Right. Flatness. I mean, there's, there's different valences, I suppose. To me, one element of flatness is homogeneity. Like, as you mentioned in the introduction, suddenly the, the fiddly fig plants is everywhere <laughs> and you can't quite tell why. Um, but I think flattening also implies a certain degree of passivity and like a thinning out of experience, this kind of like emptiness that I often find people using to describe culture right now. Mm -hmm. And it's the sense that less stuff has deep meaning for us. Mm -hmm. Like we don't truly identify with a lot of the culture we consume. A lot of it just kind of washes over us and then we forget about it and it drifts away. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is something that the big platforms, you know, your meta, um, your, which, you know, runs Facebook and Instagram, your TikTok, Uh, YouTube. Do you think this is something that platforms wanted or do you think it was more an unintended effect of the way that these, you know, what are called in the academic literature recommender systems work? Mm. It seems like kind of an unintended consequence. I mean, I think no one knew what was going to happen. This, this, the decade of the 2010s was a vast experiment in this idea of what if we connected billions of people around the planet on the same platforms. And I think it's strange to think, but that has never happened before. That is a totally novel state of affairs that someone in, you know, South Africa or Bali can consume the same kinds of like granular real-time feeds of culture that I can consume on Instagram. Mm. So I think engineers, entrepreneurs, Mark Zuckerberg like did not know what would happen to the kinds of like human culture uh, that we have when we're all connected in this way. Uh, and we're just all in the process of, of finding that out. But I do think they profit on this flattening, like Meta, Google, TikTok, they profit from treating culture and treating user experience as just this like fungible commodity that they can monetize by advertising. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the consumption side of Filter World. I mean, you have this amazing quote from a young woman in the book. I'm just going to, I'm going to read it. Um, she says, I've been on the internet for the last 10 years and I don't know if I like what I like or what an algorithm wants me to like. I want things I truly like, not what is being low key marketed to me. (laughs) Yeah, there's this anxiety. There's, I, I use this term in the book, algorithmic anxiety. And it's, it's this phrase for that feeling that, that this young woman was having of she can't separate her organic preferences, her organic desires from what is just being pushed 
to her through these feeds. So in her case, I think she saw leg warmers repeatedly on TikTok and all of these different influencers were wearing leg warmers and recommending them. And these weren't necessarily ads or sponsored content. It was just like a trend that happened everywhere online. And suddenly she found herself buying these leg warmers that she barely consciously decided to buy, wore a few times and then never looked at again. Mm. Well, and what's really interesting is I think people have noted the general category that like that this this can happen to people's sense of taste, that it becomes, mm. you know, guided purely uh, by these algorithms. But you provide some really interesting examples. And I thought maybe you could tell the story of Galaxy 500's most popular song. And first maybe for people who set us up, who's Galaxy 500? And then what's their most popular song on Spotify? Uh, yes, Galaxy 500 uh, was a band, I think in the eighties. And this was a kind of indie, you know, new wave, no wave kind of band. Um, and what happened, they, they put out a bunch of albums throughout their career and they haven't been together for a long time. But I was speaking with Damon Krukowski, who is one member of that band. And he had kind of overseen Galaxy 500's music on Spotify in this like new streaming era. And he noticed recently that one of the track, one of the band's tracks, this track Strange from 1989, was getting way, way, way more streams than every other track. So it, like you look at the Spotify graph and it's like one is just booming, rising straight up and the rest are staying about the same. And what he discovered was that Spotify was actually recommending that track much, much, much more often than all of the band's other tracks. So, and I mean, what's interesting is that it was basically almost like a parody track, right? I mean, that yeah. they were they were they were trying to make something that sounded like other music, and then Spotify was like, "Hey, you're right. That does sound like other music. Forget the rest of your catalog. Let's take this." Um, right, right. As he observed that happening, the the theory that developed and one that like a Spotify employee actually confirmed was that that song uh, "Strange" was more like other music, <laughs> so it like fit more closely with the kind of broad spectrum of music on Spotify than their other more unique tracks so it was like because it was normal because it was average and could be slotted next to other music and you wouldn't stop the stream you wouldn't like turn your listening away that's why it kept getting recommended so much well and this phenomenon extends you know both to our bodies uh you know gia tolentino's uh phrase instagram face mm -hmm. um as well as even to uh to, to like entire countries like iceland you go visit iceland and you kind of say like how has the algorithmic sorting of the internet changed iceland like how, how's mm -hmm. it done the i mean tourism is so algorithmically mediated as well it's not just your music it's not just tv it's not just your twitter feed or your x feed it is like how we move through the world and tourism, a lot of the time these days, is driven by seeing things on Instagram or searching for something on booking.com or like looking up a hotel with good Google ratings. And so Iceland over the 2000s and 2010s really boosted its tourism industry by embracing social media, like highlighting people's photos of waterfalls and canyons on Instagram and just kind of like adapting itself to that digital flow of people. Mm. And that was so interesting because it, the, the production of content seemed to play a role in the tourism, right? It's like, you see the, 
the uh, hot springs that are near the Reykjavik airport on Instagram. You see the influencers going into the turquoise blue water with their like mud face masks. And that just drove a sudden wave of, of the same tourists and the same kind of people flowing to that spot. Mm. So I can imagine we have some listeners, you know, who are not extremely online, who are just like, you extremely online nerds. It's easy to <laughs> escape filter world by simply going out in the real world and wandering around. I think the Iceland example is one uh, reason that you can't just imagine you're escaping all of a, a filter world by not participating in it yourself. Another is you quote the poet Eileen Miles, who says, you know, you may not use social media, but it's using you. You're writing in tweets like it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a sense that if you log off, <laughs> like you can get out of this ecosystem and you can in a way you, you can and should discover cultural stuff, not on the Internet. Spotify shouldn't dictate what you listen to. But so much of culture is dictated already by who has how many followers online? How many streams does a musician command on Spotify? What's their YouTube following like? Like so much of this data is already used to make cultural decisions and decide what to invest in or what to promote. So it's shaping what we see around us and what, what experiences we have available to us, even if something is not directly on the internet. Yeah. We're going to talk more about the production side after the break. We're talking with Kyle Chika about his new book, Filter World. It's about how algorithms are flattening our culture, pushing sameness on us. We're going to go to uh, Frank Ocean, a musician who hasn't played by the rules of algorithmic feeds. And we want your recommendations from something you found, a piece of culture that was not on the Internet. Song you heard in a shop, clothing brand someone recommended to you, uh, a book. I uh, will recommend Pomegranate Roads, a Soviet botanist exile from Eden, which I found in Owl and Company uh, bookstore in the used section. It is possible to find things uh, off the internet. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all of our social channels, go on the digital community on the Discord, or you can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Six seven eight six. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Let go of a prayer for you. Just a sweet word. The table is prepared for you. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Talking with Kyle Chaka about his new book, Filter World. Chaka's a staff writer at The New Yorker. 
We're also going to take some of your recommendations for pieces of culture that you found, you think at least, completely outside of this algorithmic world of recommendations, Instagram, Facebook, Amazon, etc. Tell us that story. Uh, you can email forum at kqed.org or give us a call, 866-733-6786. Um, Kyle, I mean, there have always been tastemakers, of course, um, and we're going to play a little clip here uh, from The Devil Wears Prada, and then we're going to talk about it. Something funny? No. No, 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 nothing's, you know, it's just the both those belts look exactly the same to me, you know, I'm still learning about this stuff and... Uh, <laughs> this stuff? Oh, okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back, but what you don't know is that that sweater is not just blue, it's not turquoise, it's not lapis, it's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And then I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? I think we need a jacket here. Mm. And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it uh, filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. Oh, man, the <laughs> devil wears Prada. So vicious. Even her intake of breath is mean. Um, so uh, iconic. It's, so iconic. the culture industry. Yeah, <laughs> in one, yeah. In one clip. Well, and I, I have wondered, uh, and you do wonder, I think, you, you wonder in the book yourself, you know, there were always these inner circuits of cultural production um, leading to eventual consumption. Was that world better in some way? Mm, I think the advantage of that human gatekeeper system of the like Devil Wears Prada, Anna Wintour, et cetera, is that a magazine editor or a record producer or, you know, a radio DJ can pick something up that they just so, find so inspiring and bring it to a bunch of people without any more mediation. They can just find something surprising and striking, like that color blue, perhaps, and just say, this is what people should see. I'm going to bring it to everyone. And that's kind of like a, a trickle down model of culture, like, like we heard described in the clip. What I think we have now is this much more grounds up or like a trickle up uh, model mm -hmm. where what ends up being popular is the stuff that kind of like is iteratively popular at every step of its existence. So a meme starts and it gets more fans and more fans and more fans and more fans. And then you see like a Louis Vuitton copying it. Mm -hmm. um, so these both have their strengths. Like, in the latter model, anyone can jump into that system. Anyone can put out their their thing. But I think the gatekeeper then becomes that necessity of getting attention. Like you have to, it's not just courting a gatekeeper. It's not having someone pick your stuff. 
it's the fact that you have to fight through these feeds to to get your voice heard, which is an experience I think we've all had online. Yeah. Well, and I think that the idea that there would be no gatekeeper is kind of what what uh, that was kind of a little bit of the dream of the '90s internet, early 2000s internet. And I think what we have seen uh, in recent times is, of course, there is a gatekeeper. Of course, there is a some form of curation out of every possible thing that could exist in the world being produced and every possible person to consume it. It's just that now those gatekeepers are these kind of cybernetic systems composed of influencers and recommender systems and all these different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the recommender systems are making decisions. And those are designed by human engineers at Silicon Valley companies. And there are corporate decisions that go into which variables they prioritize and how they work. So it's not like it's a fully inhuman system, but I don't think it's designed for meaningful culture in the way that like a Vogue kind of is like there's a creative investment and cultural meaning in the decision to put something in Vogue magazine that does not exist in an algorithm noticing that a certain blue is popular and then promoting it more. I think one of the real strengths of this book, too, is also looking at the way that the particular demands of algorithmic culture uh, force different kinds of cultural production. Uh, and I think you, you have an amazing example with uh, an artist in the book, Hallie Bateman. Um, can you tell, tell us a little bit about the story of you know her work and her art? Because she did succeed in this system, uh, but then had some real regrets. Right. Hallie, who, who's a dear friend of mine as well, uh, she was a great illustrator. She was doing a lot of work on the internet, building up her portfolio. And she really found that Twitter and Instagram were places to build her community. Like, so she could have access to illustrators that she admired. She could kind of participate in these collective conversations. And she would post a lot of her work on Instagram just as a way of connecting with other people, just like putting it out into the world. But gradually she found that Instagram was prioritizing and promoting certain types of her work more than anything else. So she had this series uh, of pieces that were kind of torn construction paper with short instructions or kind of commandments on them that were kind of suggestions about, you know, supporting yourself or believing in your own creativity. And these just like hit it. <laughs> these were the perfect algorithmic solution to what Instagram wanted. And they started getting her thousands and thousands and thousands of followers. And that was really cool for a while. Like she produced a book out of it. It really helps. It's nice to get attention for something. But then she felt kind of trapped in that creative identity. Like that was a meme that she had created. And now people just followed her in order to get more and more of that meme. And eventually she, she just stopped entirely. Like this turned her off of Instagram as a creative outlet. Yeah. Right. That feeling, I think a lot of digital creators, I mean, this is people who are working uh, in marketing for companies. This is journalists. This is, you know, uh, would be and actual influencers. I think people understand that that dynamic of you must feed the beast. And once you find a thing that works, you must continue doing that thing that quote unquote <laughs> works, right? You, you say in the book, you know, feeds create the need for content that exists to generate more content. Um, I, you know, is there a way, do you think, like, and I think maybe we could talk about the, the poet Rupi uh, Kaur here. Um, is there a way that, that people can take, that can start making one kind of thing, but then kind of transition away from it or move away from it? Or is there a real stickiness, as Hallie discovered, to 
doing the thing that made you popular in the first place? Mm. You easily get trapped. <laughs> I mean, mm. I think uh, even myself being on Twitter or Instagram, like you post a certain kind of tweet or X post, whatever, and it gets a lot of responses. You get the likes, you get the retweets, the, that like attention is an incentive to do more of that thing. Mm-hmm. Or on Instagram, you post a selfie and it gets a lot of likes and you're like, oh, maybe I should post more selfies. Like this will be, this will be good for my ego. Um, and I just feel like once, once a certain mode of thing gets rewarded, once that like quirk that you've discovered gets rewarded and then promoted and promoted more, it becomes harder to leave that behind because we rely so much on that attention, both for like, you know, ego and satisfaction, but also increasingly for money as artists or creatives. Mm-hmm. Like we need to, uh, there's another phrase in the book actually from this academic Kate Icorn uh, called content capital, which mm-hmm. describes that, that ability of some content to generate more content, <laughs> like the, the kind of content productivity of one thing versus another. Yeah. And you really notice when one creative strategy or one piece of culture has more content capital than another, because suddenly it's everywhere online. It like mm-hmm. works as a meme. And I mean, memes are good. They get distributed. They're fun. But I don't want all culture to just be me. You have to conform in that way, right? I mean, I think one of the things that I have noticed in all my years of working in digital media um, is that you do. You have to build the channel through which you'll deliver the other things. And I think Mm. journalists who were on Twitter discovered this in, in horrible ways, which was essentially you had to tweet all the time. So that when you actually finally finished a story because you were able to stop (laughs) tweeting for long enough to write the story, you would have people who would then pay attention to that thing. And even though it wasn't at first a a huge thing, it was kind of an insertion point into the culture, which then allowed (laughs) that story to start moving in in a broader way. But if you didn't have the content capital then that made it very difficult for those stories to, to get their start. And it's you like need the platform. Yeah. You need the platform. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And that's like, I mean, you notice how every artist is also an influencer. Now every novelist is like talking about what they eat for breakfast or where <laughs> they're going on vacation. And it's this temptation, I think, to distract yourself with things that are not the art with things that are not the thing itself that you're trying to do. As you're saying, like as a journalist, you need to tweet all the time about your writing habits or whatever, so that people then click on your article when it's actually important. And that's just a a bad incentive system, I think. I agree. Um, Although here's a counter argument from a listener. The listener writes, the For You page um, uh, has actually been a good thing for me as a parent because I feel connected to the culture that my kids are consuming. We laugh about popular memes. I'll shoot them a DM of something funny I've seen. It allowed us to have a common landing pad, which leads to authentic connection and conversation. What do you think? Hmm, That's really interesting. I mean, (laughs) some people's For You pages are very different. (laughs) Like (laughs) They are very individualized, so I don't think you always connect with the people around you in terms of what you're seeing. But I do think it speaks to how content which is like a yucky word anyway has become a kind of like community currency and a thing that you can share and connect over and kind of pass back and forth in a very nice way the way you might like recommend a novel to your friend you can also send a tiktok video and say oh this made me think of you and i think that's a really nice feeling like i love i love getting a good tiktok from a friend um but i worry that 
these platforms increasingly disincentivize that. Like TikTok doesn't need you sending the videos around to people. TikTok wants to deliver the video itself. Like it would mm. love if you just stayed in the for you feed forever and never talked to anyone else. Um, I put in my notes uh, something that I just wanted you to know, uh, which is uh, you mentioned content being a, a yucky word. And, you know, Colson Whitehead, uh, novelist, you know, became very famous in one of his early books called John Henry Days. It's 2001. Had this incredible uh, riff about content, which I'm just going to read to you and we're going to talk about for one second. Content everlasting. The man at the website sounded like a young guy, said they were looking for content. The website's set to launch in a few weeks. Eventually, they want it to have a global aspect, but for the start, they're focusing on gathering a lot of regional content. All Jay can think is content. It sounds so honest. Not stories, not articles, but content. Like it's a mineral. So honest of them. <laughs> wow. wow. And, um, so good. I, I, I bring this up uh, for two reasons. One, I agree, content is a gross word, and it has come to mean the great munge of everything that's on the internet. <laughs> Um, but also, you and I were quite young when this book came out, coming up through uh, digital media. I mean, you were in high school, I think I was in, in college. And I saw tremendous possibilities in writing stories and doing things on the internet at the exact moment when Colson is seeing this mineralization uh, of writing. <laughs> and so I think the question is, is it possible that we're just not in the places or spaces where like the new new is being created? Yeah, there's this like, aging <laughs> mechanism, I think. And I think the internet, which kind of initially promised one solution forever, this like new utopian space has shown itself to also be very generational. Like we start our careers or our lives on certain platforms and then those rise and fall and then new ones come. Uh, but I, I mean, I try to stay up on these new platforms for my job as a columnist about the internet. And I do find there's a difference in the realm of like a TikTok where it just, because it serves you so much, because it doesn't require anything of you, because it's very content for you to be a passive participant. I think it has changed the dynamic of, mm. of being online. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bigger platform than ever. It's a more passive platform than ever. And it doesn't, I mean, I was thinking about how in the early days of Twitter, when you were on Twitter enough, you wanted to post, <laughs> like you wanted to join in the conversation and like do your thing, like participate. On TikTok, I don't think that dynamic exists in the same way. Like I talked to a lot of younger people who just consume TikTok. They don't need to post. They don't need to express themselves through it. It's not so much about everyone generating their own kinds of content. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, uh, it's just about being the consumer. And, and that's, I don't know, the great joy of the internet was that everyone could put their stuff out there. Right. And there was joy in that. Um, you know, I think we almost never want to believe that the future will be the same but worse. But, you know, <laughs> that would be a natural outgrowth of what Colson said. Um, let's bring in some callers here. Uh, let's go to uh, Mary Beth in Oakland. Welcome, Mary Beth. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I um, was just curious about the author's perspective on, I, I've been somebody who only goes to bookstores that have staff picks, you know, mm -hmm. the little cards. Yeah. Just tells me what's really great because I'm just not a voracious consumer of any culture. I love culture, but I, I don't, it's not my nature to voraciously consume it. And I, so I rely on other voracious consumers to help me decide. 
Um, and so I love Spotify for that reason, too, uh, because I feel like it, it it did that for me. But I'm just curious how you see the difference between those two things, like staff picks mm. at a bookstore versus Spotify. And I, I think you've kind of answered it already, but that's what came to yeah. mind for me. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Mary Beth. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I love the bookstore staff pick blurb because that is one person who's in your community who you might run into on the street, thinking about what they like, putting it into words, and then putting up a little billboard that might persuade you to also consume that thing. I think that's like a very meaningful recommendation. Mm-hmm. I think Spotify can also help you discover things and like push you toward stuff that you didn't know about but it's not giving you the context of that blurb like the the spotify playlist is not explaining to you why you might find the next song meaningful it's just predicting what might fit with your tastes so i think there's a certain exchange like human exchange exchange of meaning and purpose and intentionality behind that like human staff blurb that that there is not behind the algorithmic feed But maybe once you do find something on Spotify, maybe you send that to a friend. Maybe you give it your own blurb and like push that further through the ecosystem. And that can be a nice active recommendation. Well, and I, you know, one other thing that I would add just from from your own book is that there is a little circuit from the social platforms into bookstores, too. I mean, called Book Talk, right? I mean, all Mm -hmm. kinds of, of books are now sold, maybe not exclusively as a result of their success in, you know, on either, you know, book influencers on Instagram or or book influencers on TikTok. But there is a, an enormous inner overlap now, which tends to explain some of the weirdness of some bookstores and the books that are in them. Because mm-hmm. like, How'd this get in here? Um, we're talking with Kyle Chaka about his new book, Filter World. It's about how algorithms are flattening our culture, pushing sameness. Uh, onto all of us and some really weird incentives onto cultural producers of all kinds. Chick is a uh, staff writer for The New Yorker. Love to get your recommendations for things that are just to your own personal taste that you didn't discover on the internet or with any reference to it. Um, We're uh, embarrassing Kyle by playing one of his favorite bands when he was a young man inherited from his mother, the Dave Matthews Band. Uh, And we'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Uh, welcome back to Forum. It's uh, Bill Evans' trio, which we also know is uh, one of Kyle's uh, favorites, one he shouts out in the book. That's Jade Visions. Um, I, you know, I, I want to um, take on what's a, what's a slightly challenging comment in the in the Discord for you. Um, and Midnight Platt says, uh, this really just sounds how like how social media and the online world furthers the homogenization of society underway since whenever Fukuyama pronounced the end of history. Hipsters who found their way into The New Yorker, I think that might be you, evolving to sell books, pointing this out and explaining this and how to be different is almost an algorithmic product in itself going back at least 70 years. Um, first, do you, do you like agree with that and then let's go into some of the things that might be specifically different because that's really you know we may not have gotten into the depths of it now but the mechanics of why this is actually different are the book that's what the whole book is Mm -hmm. yeah i mean (laughs) i am i am a hipster who writes for the new yorker unfortunately (laughs) i can't i can't dispute that um but i don't i don't think i argue that this is a new phenomenon or a totally unprecedented situation like personally one of my favorite parts of the book to write was this drive-by history of the philosophy of homogeneity over you know the last century or two different theorists who have talked about liquid modernity and the space of flows like how how things moving essentially makes things more homogeneous and i even trace this back to a 19th century commentator complaining that trains were ruining europe <laughs> like all of the cities of europe were increasingly the same um so i do think this complaint has existed for a long long time however i think what is different in this situation is that so much of our consumption habits like so much of what we pay attention to is really directed by this technology in the way that it was not before like when you had a newspaper editor they were not putting misinformation necessarily on the front page i mean maybe in in the worst cases they were but in a, a human movie producer was choosing things to to highlight and now we have this ecosystem in which just data predicts yet more data yeah yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that people who are further from cultural production, I think, may underestimate how much the underlying incentives have changed. Um, you know, I mean, I think people like shorthand it with things like clickbait, but that's not ex- it's it's a lot more complicated uh, than than just that. Also, um, for those who want to read one of the most interesting books of all time. Uh, Kyle just shouted it out, Liquid Modernity by uh, Zygmunt Bauman, um, favorite of mine as well. Um, we have uh, another listener um, wants to say, um, even on Spotify, I'm having a hard time finding new, unique, and good music. All of the Spotify playlists supposedly made for me and my music taste is just filled with trending TikTok songs. I hate it. I miss my Spotify music from 2018 when TikTok wasn't a thing. Mm. we can't control how these systems work and like how how the spotify playlist or recommendations worked three years ago is not how they work today so Mm -hmm. there's a lot changing behind the scenes that you might suddenly find yourself lost or confused or missing a different era of the platform and they do change how they work uh in the case of the the tiktok domination of music 
I mean, that's also a case of TikTok shaping what music is produced because it it has the most upside of, of promotion to a vast audience. Um, but I do find that a lot of people complain to me, Spotify isn't surprising me enough. Like its recommendations are actually too conservative. They're really keeping me in the zone of my own taste. And that's a big theme of the book. Like the, the algorithmic feed, the automated playlist is not trying to bring you somewhere new. It's not trying to challenge what you already like. It's just there to find something that fits so neatly into what you already like, but is maybe a little bit different that you'll be interested, but not grossed out. <laughs> like, yeah. not you don't need to think about it. It's like, hmm, this is a nice twist on a familiar theme and then move on with your life. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Jamie in Richmond. Welcome, Jamie. Hi. Um, I would like to share a book that I read, um, which shows the dystopian future if we don't uh, change how we're doing this. It's by M.T. Anderson. It's a young adult novel. And the title of it is presciently Feed, F-E-E-D. Mm-hmm. And it's about a time in the not-so-distant future when they've decided that the best thing for everybody is to implant a feed at the base of your brain when you're a child. And then um, as you grow up, you just get fed all this information. Anytime you walk by a store, just you, you might like this, you might like that. Um, and you can never turn it off. And the comparison is with a child who didn't get her feed until she was, mm. you know, like a uh, teen. And hers doesn't work as well as everyone else's. And how her life is different from theirs. Mm. Because she had parents who wanted her to make her own decisions. So it's a it's a really great yeah. read. Yeah, uh, Jamie, thank you uh, so much for that. And I, I think it kind of leads me into something that I I kept kind of you don't you don't directly tackle this. Um, you kind of go in through the idea of developing your own sense of taste, but it really felt to me that these systems are actually disrupting our sense of self, our our sense of intrinsic and inner world, um, which. Which of course has been true since we started mediating our brains with novels and and other things, but I think your argument is this is particularly disruptive to the creation of some sort of core uh, of identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think personal taste is a big part of identity. Like what we like is what we identify with, is what like moves us and is in our souls. And I think we have outsourced a lot of that personal taste decision-making and identification to algorithmic recommendations. Um, And I mean, so much of what goes on in our subconscious, like decisions about what we like, what we feel close to, are now moving through these feeds. And I I think another recommendation for me to make is the the Korean-German philosopher, Byung-Chul Han, who has observed that the internet has a way of almost like killing the subconscious <laughs> that it's like our, our internal self is, is no longer in existence. And we're just like the content of our feeds. I mean, here's another question that came up for me, a big question that's raised by the book. I think why is our politics polarizing, not just in the U S but as you know, this is, you know, these, these technical phenomenon, uh, phenomena are, you know, international and um, by nature. But like, why is our politics polarizing if our culture is kind of flattening, emptying, thinning? 
Mm. The the conclusion that I came to kind of after writing the book, which the book is like largely focusing on culture. um, But culture is this like vast singular funnel where everyone is being kind of directed toward the same average aesthetics of like blip bloopy Spotify music and pastel colored Instagram stuff. But I think in other areas like politics, you could think of a bunch of different funnels or like a few different funnels. So everyone's getting sorted into these generic identities and maybe, I mean, to take Republicans and Democrats, for example, there's no way of unifying those two bodies, but I think within themselves, they've become generic in a way. Like there's only one way to be a Democrat. There's only one way to be a Republican. You can't hold different views within your identity at the same time because there's a lot of pressure to just comply with the the average identity that exists there. It's like the the gravity is too strong. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got, uh, we're going to get to people, some people's ideas for recomm- finding things outside of these recommender systems. Maria mm-hmm. writes in to say, my best non-internet find was at a garage sale where I found a Benson and Hedges 1970s cookbook by James Beard. I'd never heard of James Beard nor knew the fact that cigarette companies used to put out cookbooks. <laughs> I discovered some of the best recipes <laughs> I've ever made, including a simplified and amazing recipe for uh, creme brulee. Um, little little uh, not often noted in the James Beard Awards ceremonies. <laughs> um, Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. And that's like a source that you would never go to. Like that's not a 10-speed press gloss cookbook that's yes why this is a cigarette brand sponsored creme brulee recipe exactly um let's bring in uh christy in san francisco hi hey christy welcome um great show big fan um i was calling in because i recently put a little library outside of our house in san francisco and have found it to just be an amazing source of books and other media that I wouldn't have otherwise discovered. Um, you know, things show up there just this morning, a book that is from the 1960s that um, compiles a bunch of odd and curious wills of famous people showed up. Wow. <laughs> recently read a, a book of short stories by a Pakistani-American author I'd never heard of. And I think what's so amazing about it is this knowledge that someone in my neighborhood put that in there. And so I don't know who that person is, but it just feels very serendipitous and beautiful to know that someone near me read this um, and liked it enough to pass it along. Uh, or disliked it enough to pass it along. <laughs> <laughs> the serendipity, I love the word serendipity, and I think that's what's missing so much from our interactions online. Yeah. And that, that act of leaving something outside, like I was thinking lately about how just leaving something on the curb is this amazing, generous act of, okay, I'm leaving this thing. Someone else will find it useful or beautiful or interesting enough to pick up. And like, I, I live in Washington, D.C., and there are a lot of little free libraries around. And I love seeing what one neighborhood has versus another neighborhood or when someone has like dumped their entire legal library into one because it's <laughs> taking up too much space. It's such a human, real like granular representation of the the lives and thoughts that are flowing through a place. Like it is very beautiful. I think I love that Christy. Great. That's a, that's a great point. Um, I also love that, you know, you're kind of tapping into the city metabolism in a way that is, uh, that's just beautiful too. Right. Sometimes I notice a book will go from one little free library, disappear for a while, then show up in another and then disappear for a while and like all kind of within the neighborhood, you know, the circulatory system. Um, let's bring in Matt 
in San Francisco. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Alexis. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Hey, welcome. Uh, so, thank you. Yeah, so I'm, I was thinking about the, the guest was talking about how, you know, people are getting these safe bets in Spotify and, uh, you know, the, the feeds are, can be a little bit chaotic sometimes as well and unpredictable with different, you know, s- services. I'm wondering uh, if there is a way to sort of hack the algorithm where, for example, with Facebook, they have this feature where you can say, you know, I don't, li- don't want to see posts like this. So, you, apparently, you know, in theory, have some sort of power over what they're showing you. But, you know, there's not a way mm-hmm. to, like, dial up or down and, and Spotify necessarily to, you know, I want to hear more challenging music or I don't. And, you know, Pandora used to have the feature where you could do the thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of impact. So I'm wondering, is that possible? And if the guest has any tips on how that would be possible. Matt, great question. Also, I'm going to tack on a, a comment that is in the same vein. You can answer them both together, Kyle. Sriram writes, I'm a machine learning engineer with a background in recommender systems. You can think of recommender systems as behavior-based where recommendations are based on what others are listening to or content-based where they may be based on the actual content, be it music or books. To be fair, most modern recommender systems combine these two aspects into a single system wants to put a plug in for Pandora's content-based recommendations that are based on the Music Genome Project, where each song is listened to by a musician for 20 to 30 minutes, tagged with up to 450 genes. Just help me discover uh, new artists. So that's that's one answer to that question, Matt. Well, Kyle, what do you think? There's, I think there's a real problem with platforms now that you can't talk back to algorithmic recommendations that, that well or effectively. Mm-hmm. Like, I think... Uh, content-based recommendation is really useful because it is more based on, okay, what, what bodies of content or genres are you interested in? But I think if you try to, if you try to thumbs down something on Facebook, it's not going to work that well, unfortunately, (laughs) like you thumbs down, maybe the post disappears and it's like, oh no, sorry, sorry, I've delivered this to you. I'm going to do it less. And then it comes back one day later. Same thing on Spotify. Uh, my wife actually had to thumbs down Phoebe Bridgers dozens of times <laughs> before before it slowed down the How Spotify's recommendation of Phoebe Bridgers. <laughs> but eventually it got to her. Like Phoebe Bridgers came back and eventually Spotify got her. Um, but I, I, what I really hoped for, I mean, what I'm hopeful for from writing the book, there are certain regulations that could give us more agency in dictating how algorithmic feeds work and actually letting us control, like letting us kind of twist the knobs ourselves or decide how Do you believe that though? Do you believe it? Or did you need like a thing in the book where it's like, well, maybe we could do this to get out of this hellscape, (laughs) you know? No, I think I wish, like ideally you could be on Spotify and be like, no, right now I want more surprising stuff. I want to dial up the surprise knob. And just like, give me some weirder stuff. I think that is very possible. It's just, there's no corporate incentive to do that because it's easier to feed you like tasteless mush that you won't be offensive. Right. <laughs> um, we have a bunch of uh, comments uh, coming in. I want to, I'm just going to do a little block here for a sec. Uh, Billy writes, try Pandora. It's better than Spotify. And listen to some jazz radio to find some new songs. KCSM. Noel on Discord writes, I feel like we're witnessing the end of radio DJs having an influence on listeners in terms of music styles and different bands. There's still college radio stations as well as small community radio DJs who continue freeform music. I recommend people look for these radio stations to help find new music or rediscover 
old music. Another listener writes, I've been involved in making music shows on broadcast radio for over 30 years. My format has been called one of the most eclectic of any on the air. I have no use for Spotify or TikTok because I'm simply not interested in hearing the same kind of music I just listened to. More people should turn their radio on. And of course, yes, turn your radio on, 88.5 on your FM dial, all that stuff. But it's fascinating to me that broadcast media, which were once seen as the carrier of homogenization, are now this kind of redoubt of diverse musical and uh, and yeah. thought styles. Can that possibly be true? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I love being on this radio show right now because it's specific to a time, to a place. We're having this group conversation, you know, collectively in real time. And that's almost a radical act in, in an era in which algorithmic feeds dictate what we're seeing and what time we see something. So right now we're really connecting with each other in a way and passing recommendations back and forth and discussing this problem. And I think that's, that is radical right now. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, we got one uh, comment from Elliot on the Discord. I don't think the algorithm unites pop culture but further divides it. The death of Twitter has completely upended a central voice for what's big today. There's no, uh, there's so little reason to post to social media anymore because to game the algorithm, which is a lot of work, that's being done by influencers, companies, studios. Why would you post as a regular person? Why would you even want your personal post to do well in the algorithmic feed? Um, Elliot, thank you for that. I want you to queue up uh, as we come out of the show here this song, Blue and Moody by Hiroshi Sato. Kyle. Yeah. Oh, yes, this is uh, from a beautiful album uh, from the 80s by Hiroshi Sato, who's a Japanese musician. And it's this genre called city pop, uh, which got popular. It was originally popular in the 80s, but YouTube recommendations kind of brought it back and <laughs> suggested it to a lot of people. And it's been great to see people discover this new kind of music, but also take it further and dig through the virtual crates and like <laughs> discover great tracks like this, which has yeah. just become one of my favorite songs. And if you hate it, that's fine because that's Kyle's personal taste. <laughs> yes. We've been talking with Kyle Chica about his new book, Filter Worlds, about how algorithms are flattening our culture. Thanks so much for joining us, Kyle. Oh, this is so fun. Yeah. Going out to Blue and Moody by Hiroshi Sato. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another fungal hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.